BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to The Bad Broadcast. I'm your host, Maddie Murphy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a new episode of The Bad Broadcast. Today's episode is... I'm so excited about it because I am joined today by Kate Kennedy of Be There in Five. And Kate has been on the show before. She so graciously came on my podcast like more than three years ago when I was very first starting out. And she came on my podcast and it was like such a moment for me because Kate is a podcaster that I've always looked up to. I mean, she's a podcaster among many other things, but a person that I've always really looked up to. And she came on my podcast. And then since then, we've, you know, connected and become friends. And I'm just, I'm so grateful to her and, you know, she has helped me tremendously in like navigating running a podcast and what that looks like and how to do it well. And she's just, in my opinion, one of the best to ever do it. So I'm so grateful that she came on and I am doing this intro after we already recorded. So I'm going to start the episode or I'm going to start the interview for you guys in a minute. Just want to let you know that It kind of jumps in at a weird spot because we just start chatting and then I don't do any sort of intro to her. So I just wanted to let you guys know that before we begin. You can follow Kate at Kate Kennedy on Instagram or Be There in Five podcast. And her book, One in a Millennial, will be coming out in January. I will link it in the show notes so that you can pre-order it. And yeah, just thank you to Kate for coming on. She's so thoughtful and smart and funny and like, I love the way she discusses things like Taylor Swift and pop culture and all that. Today's episode, we mainly focus on 1989, Taylor's version, but we get into a bunch of different topics because I just, I love her takes on everything. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And here is my interview with Kate Kennedy of Be There in Five. Okay. You know, what's so crazy is almost to the day, it maybe was the 28th or 29th, two years ago, we met in person, had dinner in Utah. No way. Your life was so different then. Both of our lives were so different then. Well, this is the perfect segue because life was different two years ago. And then I was going to ask you before, because of course, we got to get into 1989. Like the minute it was announced, I was like, Kate, email Kate, got to get Kate on. So where were you two years ago, last time we hung out? And where were you when 1989 first came out, 2014? What was life like? In February of 2014, I started Be There in Five, the Remind Doormat business. So I had a full-time corporate job. And then I had also put turn off your straightener and turn off your curling iron on doormats, flipped them upside down and was like trying to be all shark tanky, like innovation on a stale category, flip the welcome mat upside (laughs) down. It should see you on your way out and tell you to turn off your appliances. So, and like weirdly, and that went viral. So I spent the entire year, like trying to figure out a manufacturing process for doormats while working full-time in my market research job. And then that when 1989 came out, I was on the way to the airport to a business trip in Cincinnati. I think my client was John Frieda. Yeah. (laughs) And I just remember listening to Welcome to New York being like, okay, holy guitar, very 80s. Yeah. And then Blank Space came on and I was forever changed. I was like, this is maybe the best pop song I've ever heard. And I listened to it nonstop for probably months. Does 1989 rank in your top five? Yeah. Like I think astrologically, I'm a 1989 with a red rising and a reputation moon. Right. I think those are my three (laughs) midnights is up there too, but I haven't like spent enough time with it. I feel like for it to be as legacy as the others. Right. This is the beauty of it is that, I mean, it really just depends on where you are in your life. It determines how attached you are to the album. Yeah. And that's how I feel about 1989. It was always my number one until Folklore and Evermore, which I don't know. I would love your take on this because when I rank my albums, I kind of put Folklore and Evermore 
in one space. Like I know, I, I know I should put them separately, but they feel so intertwined to me that when people are like, oh, what's your favorite album? I'm like, it's Folklore Evermore. Like that feels, it feels right to me to mm. do that. But before that, 1989 was always my number one. And then same with Midnight's. Nobody ever puts Midnight's in their top five, ever. I never get people that put Midnight's in their top five. But I think because it came out last, I mean, I was like in the thick of divorce. You know, Bejeweled comes out. I'm like, this is like the most divorcing <laughs> anthem. I but I miss sparkling. Yes. <laughs> and, it's, and I feel so attached to Midnight's. And so the love of Midnight's, love of 1989. I am in love with 1989 Taylor's version. I love it. It's really good. It's really good. I honestly don't even think the things we love are meant to be power ranked. I think that's just a faulty ideology, period. Because with anything else, you really mutually love people, whatever. Like, you can't rank them. It's not finite. Like, there's no static ranking. So I think that's how it works with the albums. Like, depending on the day, I might answer differently. And I love the timing of Midnight's for you because I do think the poppy albums with, like, Get Up, Go Out, keep sparkling are like so important in those times. Totally. And I even felt that way with IVF. Like I was in the thick of that last year and I just did not feel sparkling. And it kind of reminded me like I'm still young. Like I, you know, (laughs) you can have disappointing seasons of life and still like channel a version of you that was a little more glittering. (laughs) Even if you don't feel that way, the song kind of feigns it for you. Totally. And I, I mean, and I know people who have had the exact opposite experience where they're like, I can't rank that high because of this that I was going through and those songs feel so triggering to me. And I'm like, totally. So when it's so funny, I when I see people rank their albums on TikTok and the comments are like, it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to have wrong opinions. I'm like, isn't this like purely personal and subjective and <laughs> yes. like yes. very intimate, like how you respond to these songs and these <laughs> albums. And when people are like, mm, speak now is not in your top five. How does it feel to be a really bad fan and a really <laughs> bad person and really dumb and not smart? Like it's, it's so interesting because yeah, I mean, and that's just the, that's the beauty of all of these is how personal they feel. And my favorite is like, oh, no speak now. Yikes. <laughs> and it's always speak now. It's always speak now. It's all these speak now missionaries that are like, how dare you? And I'm like, it wasn't in there. It's I will never say I hate speak now, but it has never been in my in my top five. But yeah, when 1989, when the first one came out, let's see, 20. Yeah, it was like early 20s. How old are you? I was 26 going on 27 when Shake It Off was announced. Like when Shake okay, It Off yeah. was announced, I was 26. By the time it came out, I was 27. So yeah. I was like in that age range. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was just, it was the best. Oh man, I have such fond memories of the first 1989 drop and just that time of life. Like I was, yeah, I was, let's see, it was nine years ago. So yeah, I was 21, 22. It was just such a perfect album for me then. And the outfits for me. I Like I'm so nostalgic for like the whole media blitz, the matching sets, the spin around skirts, the shorter hair. It just was a moment. (laughs) It was such a moment. I mean, and I know that this has become a whole thing, obviously, with Taylor's version as well. But the girl gang at that point was like very empowering, like in 2014 to be all about your friends to be. And I mean, I know it's become this whole beast and, you know, all of these other things. I honestly feel even scared to get into because of everything. But at that point, when I like wasn't, I mean, I wasn't dating. I didn't have a boyfriend. I didn't really care that much. And I was like, this is like the girl anthem. Like, these are like my girl times now. Yeah, no, totally. I actually think it's a relatable arc for a lot of people. And I guess I should only speak for myself. It's relatable to me to kind of be very focused on like male validation and relationships while you're younger, to get deeper in your 20s and earn more confidence and realize that should not be the sole source of your value. You get very into friends and empowerment. And I think it can take some time to realize that like empowerment isn't only empowering people that are exactly like you, right? Yeah. But the step one is the people you're around, your friends. It's very like, you know, surface level girl power, which there's a place for. It's just not exactly like comprehensive or intersectional. And I think (laughs) she realized that later, you know, there needs to be more like actionability behind her version of feminism, but it wasn't wrong. It just was entry level, I think. And I relate to that kind of feminism at that age and just kind of, it took me time to learn. She started doing interviews being like, no one asked Ed Sheeran who his songs are about. 
And she started doing interviews being like, I used to not call myself a feminist because I didn't understand. It just meant they were supposed to be equal. Like, it it was the beginning of her being more vocal and open and honest. And like, since I'm a big fan of hers, I love eras where she's doing media. And we just got so robbed of that after 1989, post-rep. We just never really had the same amount of openness again. And it was just fun that she was out and about. And I liked the message of hanging out with your friends. And we were both the right age yeah, you know, for the bait. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. And sorry, I'm going back because I realized that I said this, but then two years ago, I was just going to give this little blurb. We met in real life. Sorry, this is taking it way, way back to the beginning when I should have said this. I had you on the podcast, like, I think I was like five episodes in. I was freaking out that you said that you would come on my podcast. And then a no, couple really? years, yeah. And then a couple years later, we were able to meet in person when you were on tour. So that's where you were two years ago, the last time, well, the only time, I guess, that I've seen you in person. Like, what was that like two years ago? Because you were touring, I mean, and you had meshed, you know, Taylor and your content into this tour. Like, what was that like? I don't know if I've ever asked you, like, what that experience was like. It was really, really special and really, really stressful. It was both. (laughs) I think that, well, what kept happening, and COVID talk is just so weird now, but what kept happening is that everyone thought that quarantine was over into into 2021. We planned this tour. And then there was like the Delta variant in August and then the Omicron variant in January or whatever. I kept being bookended by these like new variants. And then I was requiring vaccines and it was contrary. So there's all this weird ancillary controversy you wouldn't normally deal with with a tour. So when I think of that tour, I partially think of the level of stress I felt just because I wanted to keep people safe and comfortable. But I also knew that people were really wanting to get together. And if we could do so safely, like, why not? And at the time, Taylor Swift dance parties like weren't as popular at bars and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I would do like a live show and then like a dance party afterward where I would float around and meet people. And it was the highlight of my life, honestly. Like, it was just a very special experience where I think people could be in a room and unapologetically celebrate something they love. Mm-hmm. And it's so rare you're in like a bar or a club or a venue and it's like mostly women. Like you're, you're dancing and you're scream singing and you're, you're just, I don't know, people just like put their purses down and like live yeah. their best life. And I actually think the Utah one was really special for me, not to get too far into this, but I had a lot of young women coming up to me, you know, just by way of, I think, like a tendency, if you if you got married younger, or maybe had kids younger, a lot of people being like, I ne- did never really went out and danced. Yeah, like yeah, I never really like partied or did this sort of stuff before, and it really meant a lot to me that that was special for people, even regardless of age, that they were like getting a night to themselves to celebrate something for just them with their friends, and I think that's what I cared about the most was just like uncomplicated fun after a really difficult two years. No, totally, and. I struggle with this with just content in general on the internet that I come across from Swifties. And I feel like there's almost like contest between Swifties of like, who is the most emotionally attached and who knows the most. (laughs) And I especially see this when like Taylor's version comes out because it becomes like who recognizes all of the little differences the most. And if you think, you know, all these things. And it's like, I, I just, I love how you do this appreciation and analysis and love of an artist and a person without it turning into this weird, I mean, we talk about parasocial relationships all the time, but it's like this weird attachment that becomes condescending to other fans. You know what I mean? Because it's like, yeah, totally. This, like I asked people on my Instagram the other day, like what pop culture thing are you happy that you've been alive for? Like what's been the best thing? Far and away, people are like Taylor Swift, like the era's tour, like being alive for that is amazing. And it's like, I just think that so many times people tiptoe into like, well, she's actually mine. She's my artist. And I <laughs> I know these songs more. And I know. And I'm like, but isn't that the amazing thing that like we can do these Taylor Swift nights and everybody is there and everybody like believes that these lyrics are for them and without it making or without it becoming like, well, I deserve Yeah. I don't know. I deserve to critique Taylor Swift as a person or I deserve to talk about her this way or I deserve to dig into the necklace that she's wearing and if it's coded in this certain way. And it's like, I just, I don't know. You were the first person and I mean, the most prevalent person and prominent person to me that has been able to be the person who appreciates every facet of Taylor Swift without making it weird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I genuinely appreciate that for one. Because I feel like that, if anything, I get criticized a lot for that because, you know, the internet operates in binaries and it's kind of like, 
you have to be supportive of everything ever or you're a bad fan. And for me, it's like, there's that's not a thing. Like, I really think that it's healthy to be discerning about the people you invest your time and money in. And I don't want to be an example of a person always vying for like a secret session. I want to be like a normal human who's like, I don't love how Ticketmaster was handled. I don't love that, you know, we're being pulled one over on us with, you know, the capitalism of it all to buy four vinyls. So there's a four X multiplier on the album to form a clock. If you want to do that, great. Yeah. But I think there are a lot of tricky things that happen to get us to spend the most amount of money, not having all the songs on all the albums. And, you know, by the time you get them all, you'd have to like buy three or four of them. Yes, it's smart business, but at a point it is hard as a consumer to know where to place your money. And like, I think that's totally fair to critique the business strategy, but people get really upset when you do. And anyways, I appreciate you saying that because I think the bottom line is I love her music. I think overall in popular culture, she nets positive. It's a really beautiful thing to be a part of. But I think you also it's fair to be a human who spends their money and wants to cast a vote with it and to, yeah, have opinions. Like totally it's cultish to imply you can't have feedback on something that you closely follow. Did you know that you can tell the difference between a laboratory grown diamond and a natural diamond? Laboratory grown diamonds are mass produced in factories and in just a few weeks and are easily detected due to their distinct patterns. On the other hand, natural diamonds are over a billion years old and support the livelihoods of over 10 million people worldwide. The positive impact of natural diamonds is widespread. Around 80% of the value of every rough diamond remains in local communities and supports infrastructure, healthcare, education, and environmental protection. So next time you're thinking of celebrating a special moment in your life, remember that your natural diamond can also protect vulnerable wildlife species and bring prosperity to many communities around the world. For more information on this, visit naturaldiamonds.com. This episode of The Bad Broadcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Do you have an idea, a little nugget of an idea that you think could be a really cool business that you want to put online, that you want to turn into a website, but you don't really know where to start, so you just kind of bury that idea in the back of your mind? That is the story of my life before I started The Bad Broadcast. I had no idea how to build a website, how to sell merch, how to do any of it. And then I was pointed in the direction of my holy grail, Squarespace, and it made it so easy. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Maybe you're just starting out. Maybe you have a growing brand. Maybe you're selling out dozens of warehouses all over. Squarespace makes it easy to do whatever you want to do and create a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell anything from products to content to time, all in one place, all on your terms. You can upload, organize, and access all of your content from one place with the new asset library. So you're able to manage all of your files from one central hub, and you can use them across the Squarespace platform. You can easily sell custom merch and create a passive income stream that engages your audience and scales your brand. They make it super easy. That was where I started off. Also, email campaigns. Everybody always told me that email campaigns are the way to go. You can drive sales and engage your audience with Squarespace email campaigns so you can easily collect email subscribers on your site and then you can build connections and repeat business through regular email updates. So head to squarespace.com for your free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, you can go to squarespace.com slash bad to save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. I have a friend, Amanda, who she's like my, she's my go-to Swifty for everything. And she just is talking about this deification of Taylor Swift and how it's become a beast that like, I, I said on one of my Patreon episodes, it's like, I've made Taylor Swift content. I've done episodes about it. And I've done episodes, you know, all these things. And then I've had to take a step back and be like, am I being weird? Am I being like a weird person? That's like, you know, that feels like, I don't know. And this this ties into 1989, Taylor's version for me, because we're getting these kind of puzzle pieces. At least for me, it feels like we're getting these puzzle pieces about past relationships. And it's for me, it's like, it's interesting. It's fun. I like putting this together. I like knowing which songs are sisters and which, you know, what she sampled and all of these things. But then when I see content of people being like, well, now on a personal level, I now have access to these people and I know the inner workings of everything that's happened to them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's become this thing where people 
I don't know, just they attach themselves too personally to these things. And I've been worried in the past that I do it, like that I'm like, oh, no, I'm (laughs) speculating on Harry or on Travis Kelsey or on all these things. And I'm like, I think that I need to consume for the art rather than for the personal life. You know what I mean? I know. I I think about this often because I want to be like responsible in how I cover things. And I hate a lot of like the misogyny and stuff that like female artists and public figures deal with and blah, blah, blah. But with Taylor Swift, I struggle because such a big part of her lore is kind of these treasure maps she builds and these Easter eggs. And, you know, she started by putting like secrets in the liner notes and capitalizing certain letters. And that was directly attributed to who the song was about. And over time, I think she's realized like kind of the slippery slope that was and how the interest in her personal life, I think, just got to next level. But at the same time, yeah, we're still putting out songs, Blue Dress on a Boat. I mean, that these most obvious direct tie to a very, very public thing that happened with her and Harry Styles in 2013. Yeah. I often feel guilty as a consumer of like, I don't know how to consume and process and share about this content, Agree, like you said, without being creepy or digging too deep. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's a bit on her that it's never been clear to us what's an Easter egg and what's off limits. The lines are very blurred. It's like, the prologue says, don't talk about my personal life. The media obsesses over my boyfriends. The vault songs are directly about Harry Styles. So Katie, what do you, yeah. you think is going to happen? No, this is what it is because I'm like, I don't want to sit here and, uh, sorry, I keep saying it, but be weird and be like, well, they had that date and they had that paparazzi walk and they had this <laughs> yeah, and right. she had the sweater with the fox on it. Like, what is it, you know, but it's, but you're <laughs> right. <fox> I mean, <laughs> but like, you're right. And the baby, the fox yes, sweater and the and baby. The baby, <laughs> and the baby and and, you know, like, it's hard because that is part of it. Do you ever worry? I mean, maybe worry is the wrong word. Do you ever think that the overexposure, especially right now with everything, new boyfriend, 19, with all these things, that the cycle will, will start again and we will get another silent pre-reputation era? I've thought about that a lot, especially like with the NFL of it all and having like kind of the wrong people be overexposed. I think the right audience being overexposed, it doesn't really matter. But it's like yeah. a permeation into mainstream where people are seeing you and they're not electing to that. I think it kind of can turn, but I also think that we're in a different time than ever before. We're like the insertion of TikTok in the pop culture realm. It meant that like when she, her reputation kind of came down before it was predominantly media outlets sharing her in a controlled way where you were seeing her all the time. Now, instead of like, that model, we have a content centric model where people are making content about her all the time. She's like walking content farm. And it's almost like, I don't even know what overexposure looks like. Cause we're already there. Like yeah. it's contained within the fandom algorithmically. So I don't know if it's a problem, but I was talking about on my podcast, how I feel like there's almost Swifty 2.0, like this fandom where it used to kind of be like Tumblr, Reddit, Twitter, actively seeking out this like corner of the internet. And now people on TikTok call her mother Mm -hmm. and she's been elevated to this version of herself that is almost like she's not a person. I think there's a, almost a dehumanizing glorification of her where the way people talk about her is theoretically positive, but it also is like so, so granular and so invasive. Like, I, I don't know. It's, I I don't know if it's better or worse. Like it's, it's weird. What's interesting to me is like some of her biggest fans that would probably be mad at me for saying something negative. They're obsessed with her, but in the con- the content they're making is like planning her and Travis's wedding. And I'm like, okay, but you know, that 1950 shit they want from me, like one could argue that that's really not what she wants from you either. No, it's, it's true. It's so weird. And it's like this simultaneous thing that's happening where she's not a real person, but they believe they have access to her as though she's their best friend. Yeah. And I go in and out of feeling that way too and wanting to like deep dive at that level. And, but I think that the past few months, especially with with the Travis Kelsey of it all, I've almost like stepped back and I'm interested in analyzing the fandom itself in being in it so long. I've watched it evolve. And I, and I feel like the addition of TikTok has created a different animal where, like I said earlier, I think she's a content farm and, and anything she does can be analyzed for sport and engagement. And I just think it's a different animal than anything we've ever experienced before or anything that I see. I don't really see a lot with other artists, but they might not be on my algorithm. I mean, that brings up a good point. I was looking at something. I'm like, I'm not in the Bad Bunny fandom at all, but he's so famous. I mean, he's I mean, he's people's lives. And I'm like, am I just not 
on that side? Am I not, is that not being fed to me? I don't know. Because to me, it doesn't happen with any other artist. Yeah, I think that's the other interesting thing that I've had to check myself is almost the delusion of the Swifty fandom. Because in the summer, there was this rumor that Taylor Swift had written a memoir. And people thought it was her because it was announced on June 13th and it was coming out on July 9th. People were like, oh my God, last kiss. That July 9th, the beat of your heart. It was BTS's book, the K-pop band, BTS. Probably the biggest fandom in the world. And it was interesting to me because I knew that it was BTS's and booksellers were like, just in case it was Taylor, they were taking pre-orders. It was this whole thing on TikTok of speculation of people saying it's definitely hers. Who else has June 13th, July 9th? But then like the BTS army, I think, was formed on July 9th. They did their debut on June 13th. Like those are meaningful dates to them, too. Like Taylor Swift doesn't own dates. It was almost interesting to watch from the outside of being like, People are really convinced that other massive fandoms don't exist. Yeah. Other people might not have key dates that they announce for things and that this couldn't be some other huge stars book because there are huge stars in fandoms that were just not algorithmically fed. So I think it's a little bit of a balance of both. Totally. So to me, and again, me and my friend Amanda talked about this, there's no conceivable way that she can be on the internet in any way. I mean, I don't know how one would be able to scroll TikTok and be Taylor Swift. Like, I know that in these last couple of days, she's liked, she's commented. To me, I'm like, is that a team member? Is that somebody? Like, do you think that she's on the internet? Okay, most people I know that are public facing in the context of where people could at any point be talking about them positively or negatively, do not look and have a very controlled feed of what they're shown. Like things are directly sent to them if it's them commenting on it. I interviewed like a really, really big author, like doing very well, who was like, I wouldn't dare get on Goodreads. Even the things that compliment you also were like, I, you know, used to think she was a bitch, but I love this book or whatever. (laughs) And if you're a creative person who's sensitive, like you, you kind of get to a point where you cannot look at anything. And And I really think Taylor Swift is sensitive. And I really think this stuff gets to her. And on the one hand, I hope she sees that by and large, it's, it's positive. It's hype. People love her, RIP dead dying over everything she does. But if I were her, I think it would be a bit dangerous to rogue scroll the For You page. Absolutely. I would guess that it's sent to her. Yeah, it's an unfathomable amount of content being made about a single person. The rational mind can't even fathom what that would be like to get on. I can't even fathom it. And it's not even about me. Like it's about somebody else. And I'm like, this is too much. This is too much for me, a person who's not even a part of this. Like, It's crazy. I think about this often, like you mentioned earlier, like how different your life is when you first started the podcast and you put it on the internet and then it changes. And like, I feel for her because I would imagine when she was younger and starting to kind of put out these puzzle pieces and Easter eggs, she wasn't as famous as she is now. She didn't think it would maybe have the longevity it does. And so I feel kind of even weird being like, well, she started it because I think as you get older, you do want to reel it in and you do want to withdraw and you do want to share less. And I think it's probably really confusing for her what elements of her life are up for leveraging for promotion and what she kind of withholds. Because even with like the Joe to Travis whiplash, it's like, okay, don't talk about my personal life at all. Like Joe was so private, but Travis is so purposefully public. It's like, I think the messaging even changes from her. So uh, the whole thing's confusing. And ultimately, I just think people should have fun. Like, I don't think we're meant to fight about it on the internet. I think we're meant to like enjoy the music, have fun, analyze it for sport, but don't be weird to your point. <laughs> yeah, yeah don't, be, yeah, don't be weird. Keep is, it cute. Yeah. <laughs> keep, it, keep, it, keep it nice. But it's such a fascinating concept to me anyway, when people say things like, well, she's public or she made this choice. And so I deserve to rip, her to shreds, or I deserve to be overly invasive, or I deserve to, you know, speculate on these things and say these nasty things. And, you know, because I've gone through this a million times in my head because I'm like, so do people feel like, well, because they chose to be public, my moral compass or my morality lowers of what I can say about them because they've chose this public life? Because by and large, the people who say nasty things or make hurtful comments about her, whatever it is, they would never say that about somebody else, but they say, well, she chose it. Well, she chose this. And it's like, yeah, but why does that affect the way you treat a person on a human level? You know, it's just, it's, it's a concept I've, I've struggled with because of my experience. Yeah. From the beginning of the podcast till now where I'm like, 
wait, just because this decision was made, how come that gives permission to act a certain way when you would never do that normally? You know, like, I don't know. That's that's a whole other beast, probably. Yeah. And I think like that's something we could talk about forever as to semi public facing podcasters, because I think we both probably more so than your average person, not only experience it a, a little bit firsthand and then therefore we really think about how we talk about other people. Yeah. Whereas I think your average fan isn't like putting as much thought into like how they talk or think about Taylor Swift, where I think you and I are probably like, we know how much this can sting. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't want to yeah. be like hypocritical in how we treat other people. But it's weird when you are talking about pop culture. And I think that that's an evolution I've had is I was definitely looser and more critical at first, but you over time learn that you actually do want to be like a little bit more responsible than what you put out there just to be a nice person. (laughs) Well, and just, and I mean, and just to your point, I mean, and what everyone was saying on my, on my Instagram, that they're just happy that they're kind of witnessing Taylor Swift and the Eras tour and that it really is at its core should just be fun and should just be this thing. It should just be this. I mean, like I, I was loving, I mean, I love all eras content and I love that people were saying, I felt so safe at this concert and I loved going here and I, you know, stuff like that, that is so positive that I'm so happy exists. Like that when 1989 came out a couple days ago, I'm like, I don't feel anything other than excited to hear a new rendition of it or new or what is she going to change or what is she going to put in or what is she going to like it just feels exciting to me and it bums me out when it becomes something else when people are like well I don't like this one synth she added on this one and so I'm gonna and I'm like this is just fun that we get it twice like this is so fun like I love pictures of where people were when 1989 first came out and where they are now it's like these cool milestones in our personal lives that I feel excited about to even be witnessing. And so I don't know, maybe I'm in the minority, but I like don't beef with 1989 Taylor's version at all. I think it's fun. I think that there's like changes that I love. I love the new Out of the Woods. Yeah, uh, the new Out of the Woods is really good. Oh my gosh, it just sounds bigger. It's like, and I think, did you post a couple days ago? I mean, is it your favorite song on the album? Mm -hmm, Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I toggle between that and clean, but the new Out of the Woods and I love this vault. It's a really strong vault. Upon first listen, my favorite was Say Don't Go. But throughout the weekend, my front runner became Is It Over Now? Mm -hmm. I think Is It Over Now was so much to take in at first. And I was so like, oh, my gosh, she said the blue dress. Oh, my gosh, she's referencing the the 20 stitches in a hospital room. Yeah. Because I can't help but, like, analyze the lyrics first. But then just from a sonic perspective, it's, like, so earwormy. It's so addictive. Like I could listen to it on repeat and the pre-chorus is so good. It's so good. And I feel like maybe I said this earlier, getting these new puzzle pieces for 1989, because to me, songs like All You Had to Do Was Stay and I Wish You Would, they felt more general. They didn't feel super pointed at anyone or anything. And I and maybe yeah. it's because I was younger when they came out, but it never occurred to me like, oh, this could be about this person or this relationship. But then it's like you add in these vault tracks and it fills in these blanks. You know, say don't go feels like it filled in blanks to all you had to do was stay to me. And I was, you know, for sure. And, and then it tied in, and then we have the callbacks to midnight, like all of these things. It's so fun. It's so fun to piece it all together. It is. But I I love the 1989 vault. Okay, here's my question for you. And I debate this with people sometimes. All of her vault tracks, specifically, I kind of mean the red tracks, but all of vault tracks in general, do you think that they were really written then? Or do you think that she has written new songs for The Vault? I think this is tricky because people, it's, well, it's like you're implying she's lying or something if you say you think that they were tweaked in more recent time. But I think it would be really unrealistic to say they're completely maintained from their form in 2011 when they were written or whatever. Totally. So, but I think it would be fair. Like, I think that if she had the bones for a particular song that she was working on but never finalized or finessed, yeah, she's going to finesse it now. And that probably includes some lyrical changes. And I think in general, we take her lyrics super literally when if you watch like any making of the song, like even Getaway Car, it's, you know, that famous scene where her and Jack are like, I'm in a motel bar, and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever. They get yeah. excited and they figure out the bridge. It's like, I think that's the creative process. It's like, what happened, but also what rhymes, what fits, what sounds good. Totally. And I think that from that standpoint, it makes a lot of sense that the lyrics would be modified before being recorded as vault tracks. So 
I mean, I think the biggest head scratcher is fuck the patriarchy. This is what I'm saying with Red. This song was 10 minutes at first, you know? And I'm like, yes. And then did she get entangled and like, you better give us a 10 minute version? Because I mean, there's a good chunk of that song that's not lyrics. That's not, I mean, that's a, it's like basically the last minute and a half of a song. And was she like, okay, I got to pump out 10 minutes of this because eight years, whatever, <laughs> however many years ago, I said I had a 10 minute version and now I got to add on because I got to deliver. I, I think that is totally realistic. Like, I mean, you talk for a living. I feel like all the time I'll say something took like 10 minutes, like 15 yeah. <laughs> minutes. Did it? I don't know. I'm rounding. I, I, in general, I'm very off with like numbers and dates and stuff. When All Too Well 10 Minute Version came out, I I saw an interview she did where she said she mentioned offhandedly like one time and that it became a part of the lore and that people yeah. asked her about it ever since. So, yeah, I think what probably happened is there were a ton of verses and it was like 10 minutes, but it wasn't <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it was because Liz Rose, who co-wrote it, I think co-signed that it was much, much longer and they had to edit it down, which I don't doubt at all. Yeah. But yeah, the whole outro of Wind in My Hair. It was yeah. there, I was there. I mean, that whole part is pretty extensive. Totally. Yeah, and I I mean, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. And in 1989, or in the 1989 vault, Suburban Legends, to me, I mean, and I know people are saying this a lot, that the production of the vault tracks do feel like Midnight's, which I totally agree. And as a Midnight's truther, I love. But also the lyrics of Suburban Legends feels Midnight's-y to me. It feels like you're on your own kid. It feels like it fits more there, which would make sense because that's like, you know, how she's writing right now and how she's producing. It makes sense that Midnight's bled into the 1989 vault. But I'm like, this just doesn't yeah. feel, I, I mean, and who's to say, but it just, it feels like a new song. It feels like something that was written in the last couple of years based on how she has written in the last couple of years, you know? I know. And it's hard to tell because even if something was written in 2013, the reality is it's being produced now and recorded now. So yeah. the things that relate to how it sounds are very recent. Yeah. And lyrically, it's kind of like hard to tell. Yeah. Suburban Legends, I would, I think is the one song, like I, I'm having trouble understanding, but I also think I'm a bit dense when it comes to Taylor Swift's high school metaphors. It took me a full year to understand Miss Americana and the Heartbreak Friends. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I, I think, yeah, You're On Your Own kid ends with like, basically a high school reunion and she does a full carry. I looked around the blood soaked gown. Yeah. And this is also about a reunion. And I, I think Suburban Legends is honestly my least favorite song. Same. Where does it fall for you if we're power it, ranking? It's if we're power ranking, it's for sure. What how many is there? Four or five? It's the last five. on my list. Yeah. It's it's number five. Yeah. So I think what's interesting about take Say Don't Go, for example. That song sounds so 1989 to me. And we have proof that it is like an overflow track that was cut because Diane Warren, who she co-wrote it with, had an interview even in 2014. I mean, like, I wrote a song with Taylor Swift. I hope it, hope it makes the album. It never did. It saw the light of day. But it sounds kind of similar to the out of the woods, like, building vibe. Definitely. And the lyrics are pretty simple on it. And that's an example of, like, Antonoff making a track. She writes to the track. And I don't think it's that, like, lyrically dense. It's more about, like, how the melody builds. Whereas Suburban Legends, I don't find the melody all that strong. And the lyrics are almost so intricate. It's yeah. like there needs to be a balance. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it because I'm not a music person, but like it, it's really lyrically dense and good, but it almost like doesn't match the track to me for some reason. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I find myself listening to so many tracks where I'm like, I hear what's going on. I have no clue how to phrase that or how to say like I made a TikTok about like my favorite sounds. And then I had people in my DMs that were like, well, this is called this in production and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I just like, I'm telling you what the sounds I like. I like mascara. Wait, run. What was the TikTok? <laughs> it was your favorite sounds in Taylor Swift songs, your favorite sounds in general. <laughs> no, my favorite, I should do sounds in general, but no, my favorite sounds in Taylor Swift songs. Like I love like feel the mascara run. Like that's like, I oh my love gosh, that. one of my favorites. Mascara run. Like the way she says it is really, yeah, oh, I agree. It's so good. And like, there's so many words and people had this whole list of like, well, this is what this is called when you do this. And I'm like, I don't know what they're called. I don't know how to describe it. I have a vibe that I can tell you about. Like I can tell you the vibe, like the new <laughs> vibe of Out of the Woods, I love. And the only word I know how to describe it is that it feels big. It feels that noise that yeah. comes before the chorus, like, I like that it's bigger because I love this song and it feels like it should be big to me. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm sure there's little production things that 
smarter ears would be able to name. Yeah, I I can't detect them or describe them, but I am so with you. There are certain things that scratch my brain in all the best ways. And one of the ones I've been thinking about all weekend that I can't figure out is what's so enjoyable about the way she says waiter and date her. She pronounces them like a little weird or flat waiter. And then the whole pre-course with hips and thighs, like the way she's like hit in enunciating and hitting certain notes in words. It's just like, yeah, it's candy to your yeah, ears. Yeah. And it's like, I will like kick my feet like a little girl, like at that. Is it, is that considered the pre-course of, is it over now? Like hips and thighs, like I that, think, or is that the chorus? Yeah. Yeah. Is it over now? <laughs> I'm trying to think. I think yeah. the pre-course is hips and thighs and like whatever. Yeah. And then the flashing lights, at least I had the decency to keep my yeah. nights out of sight. Only rumors about my hips and thighs. I think that's a pre-chorus. And then the is it over now part is the chorus chorus. But I also mm-hmm. don't know shit about music. This episode of The Bad Broadcast is brought to you by Clean Simple Eats. It's very appropriate that I am talking about Clean Simple Eats today because I got a very special package in the mail literally this morning. And it is the eggnog protein powder and the gingerbread cookie butter from Clean Simple Eats. The holiday season is here. As far as I'm concerned, it's eggnog and gingerbread season. Let's talk about Clean Simple Eats protein powder. I know you guys have tried protein powder that tastes like chalk. I know you have because most of them do. Not Clean Simple Eats. I've gotten everybody hooked on this. I have made the creamiest protein shakes and protein desserts of my entire life with zero chalkiness. They have amazing flavors. They've got, like I said, their new eggnog. My personal favorite right now is the chocolate brownie. They've got s'mores. They've got cake batter. They've got mint chocolate cookie. They've got the vanilla, if that's what you like. But one thing I love about Clean Simple Eats is that they have high ingredient standards. So whatever flavor you pick, whatever protein deliciousness you're creating, they all taste amazing. Their protein powder is always grass-fed with no artificial ingredients. It is third-party tested, non-GMO, and gluten-free. Plus, it is female-founded, female-owned. You know we love that here at The Bad Broadcast. It is the most delicious protein powder I've ever tasted. I might gift it to people for Christmas. (laughs) If you would like to give it a try, visit cleansimpleeats.com and use the code BAD at checkout for 20% off of your first order. That's cleansimpleeats.com, code BAD, for 20% off of your first order. This episode of The Bad Broadcast is sponsored by Buffy. All right, well, it's winter. I don't know where you guys live, but where I live, it's winter, which means I'm going to be spending a lot more time in bed and under the covers, which means my comforter and my sheets need to be as delicious as possible. Buffy really is the softest, most breathable, best bedding I've ever owned. I purchased it long ago, long before our partnership, I was buying Buffy. I had heard about it on another podcast. I knew I needed to try it and it delivered. Buffy has Earth's softest bedding. The Breeze sheet set by Buffy are the softest sheets you'll ever try, by far. They're woven from eucalyptus, making them softer than cotton or linen. It's also naturally cool to the touch. When it's winter, I want to stay warm. I don't want to be sweaty. I want it to breathe. I want to stay cool, but not cold. And this is research back to be more breathable than cotton or linen and perfect for hot sleepers. It's also made with natural botanic dyes that are skin safe and better for the planet. Buffy products are consistently on best of lists, including my own. But if you need something, you know, a little bit more official, Architectural Digest and Glamour named Buffy Breeze Sheet Set the best bed sheets of 2023. See for yourself why Buffy has over 50 thousand five-star reviews. Shipping is always free. And if you don't love your Buffy sheets, there's a 50-night return policy on all orders with free shipping on returns and no return fees. So upgrade your bedding with the Breeze sheet set by Buffy. Go to buffy.co and use the code BADBROAD for 25% off of your first order. That's buffy.co promo code BADBROAD for 25% off of your first order. This thing that she does in her writing that I feel like she does, I mean, she probably does it a lot, but the one that comes to mind is right where you left me, where it's like almost the melody ends, but the sentence goes on to the next stanza 
where it's like it feels like the end of the music and then it starts up again, but the sentence is continuing. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Uh, Like at least I had the decency to keep my nights and that feels like the end of the music right there. Yeah. But then it goes on, nights out of sight. It's a new musical sounding thing, but a continuing sentence. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. It's like packing in syllables that are like offbeat. Yes. Yes. And it feels, I mean, like, yeah, it feels like it's delicious to listen to because yes, like it just keeps going and it sounds good. And I, yeah, I love that part of that song. It's kind of like the first listen of Death by a Thousand Cuts. It just kept going. You're like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Like, don't stop. What were the other sounds you like? I could talk about those all day. Oh my gosh. Okay. I should pull, or let's see, I have my list right here. I keep a list because I need to do a part two. I don't know what instrument it is, but the opening notes of Red like I won't even try to sing them, but like, it, yeah. Is it like a guitar? The banjo is it a, thing? Is it a banjo? I thought it was like a mandolin. Yeah, I said harpsichord, and people were like, "Not right, not even <laughs> close." I was like, I was like, okay, let's is see. Is that part of your podcast, like the Dum Dum Club? Like this yes. is like music for dumb people. <laughs> Like our conversation. (laughs) Anybody out there who has any real music experience is going to be like, who gave these two? I I always tell people, I'm like, I don't even know audio. Like I recently bought a soundboard and it was like the hardest thing I've ever done. First of all, was try to set it up. And my job is literally audio. Like I couldn't (laughs) tell you the specs of my mic and my headphones. Like I have no clue. And people are like, I have an audio question. I'm like, It's not me. I promise you, it's not me. (laughs) But another one that I love from Out of the Woods, and she does it again in Taylor's version, is how she says crying. Oh, my God. What? She said crying. Yes, I agree. And I don't know even how to emulate why she says crying so weird. Okay, so I have have my theory as a veneer veneer girl, because my teeth are all fake. So my front eight teeth are fake. And first of all, it changes the way you talk. I slur some of my words together because my teeth are not my natural shape. This Mm, has a point, mm -hmm. I promise. So like when I say yesterday, a lot of times I slur it together because my teeth feel a little bit weird. When I say 1989, I, I sometimes say like 1989 because of my teeth. So I think her teeth have affected how she says, because she's not saying crying. It's like her lips aren't going all the way over her teeth. So she's saying cry, like when you watch her sing. Yes. She says crying, but her mouth isn't going. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. And I'm also laughing because I have a bottom retainer and it prohibits me from certain enunciations. And I did a 1989 episode last week and I had to go through and re-record half the times I said the term 1989 because I was saying 19, like I was completely slurring yeah. the, the teen and the 80 together and it sounded insane. And I, and I was like, man, this bottom retainer is really messing up my enunciation. So it's funny to me that you have trouble with that too. Maybe yeah. it's just hard to say 1989. It might be. It might be. I'm standing by that it's just hard to say and it's not my fault. But this is like the content that weirds me out when people are like zooming in on her canines and they're like, this little thing was, right. and look, she got this work done. And I'm like, veneers just change the way your face looks. It just looks weird. It changes the way you talk. But all of that whole preamble to say some words that she says sound better to me because she has this way of, I don't know, I don't know if a non-Swifty is listening to this, it probably sounds insane. But to me, that's where when she says crying, it's like that. You know what I mean? No, I love that you're obsessed with sounds too, because it reminds me of there are certain TikTok dances where certain dance moves are so satisfying. And I will watch that dance over and over. And I don't even know why certain dance moves are satisfying or even how to describe that sensation. I don't know. And do you still do Frisian Friday? Well, I don't because Instagram flags longer form audio, like music. And I used to put videos of like live performances and stuff. And now they all get oh, taken down. But that's how I would describe it. It's kind of this like... I don't know, this feeling that you're like, why do I need to listen to that over and over again? Not even just specifically Taylor Swift, but just any song that I listen to, I feel like I get attached to weird little parts of it. Like I'll be like, listen to this one word that this person says, you know, in this one song. And it'll be the reason I love the whole song because that one word 
I love. Like, I I love, you know, the Zach Bryan, Casey Musgraves song. I remember everything. And I'm like, he slows down this one word. And so the whole song's perfect because I heard this song <laughs> once. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's another reason why I love Taylor's version of everything is because we get the new little noises. How do you feel about crispy R's? Crispy R's. I hate because you want to know why I hate them. I hate them in general, but somebody called them gooey R's. Oh, no. I had crispier R's when I started out, but then I heard myself too much and I think I've tried to control mm-hmm. for it. But if I'm not careful, they crisp a little. Goo is, is yeah, tough goo, stuff. Yeah, goo is hard to but overcome. I think I learned it from Kourtney Kardashian. Like, it, she's a person that when she talks, it's almost hard to not start to imitate her. I mean, pre-TikTok, pre-like naming everything that TikTok does, they were like hot, they were like hot girl R's. That was like how hot girls talked. Like it was how California, Mm. to me, it was how California hot girls talked. And so I remember like attempting to do that and saying like, I love green. I love the green ones. And I love, because it was everybody who I knew who talked like that was hot. So I was like, yeah. (laughs) But now it's like in the age of TikTok where you literally can't get away with anything. I love that you bring this up because it truly is living in a world where everything can be branded and commodified to the point where we're calling using neutrals on your face, cinnamon cookie butter makeup. (laughs) What? I know. I know. It's such a weird phenomenon. Like, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Something that podcasting has done for me in a negative way. I mean, I really, to my core, I really was like, I don't have a Utah accent. There's no way. Nothing I say sounds weird. Anyone who hears me talk, you would never be able to. Oh, TikTok really schooled me on that. They really were like, no, Maddie, it's bad. Your Utah accent is bad. And it has really like shaken my identity. Okay, say sale. Okay, so this is, so I say sale and I also say my T. So I say mountain and curtain. But where somebody pointed out is that it's the Whitney Rose Real Housewives of Salt Lake where there's an overemphasis on the G's of things. So there's swingers or wingers or... I don't know what other words to talk about besides swingers and wingers. Whitney Rose does emphasize her G's a lot. I think the more outstanding thing she does or mo- more obvious like thing as an outsider to Utah is double E's or I's. So feelings becomes fillings. Like my dad's name, Dale, becomes Dell. Yes. Like D-E-L-L almost. Like it kind of flattens it. And so many Utah bloggers talk about things on sale. I think that's the most standout word to me. Because they're like, it's on sale. It's yeah. on sale. And I'm like, it's a very specific thing. Yeah, it's almost like I wouldn't peg Utah as a place with an accent, but it totally is. And I actually haven't really noticed it on you. The other one where somebody pointed out was like, if there's a G at the end of a word, it almost takes on a K noise. So when I say wrong, I say wrong. It's the G thing where it almost sounds like wrong. Like I'm never wrong. So anyway, TikTok, TikTok, (laughs) you know, it's just it's not going to let me get away with anything ever. Somebody wrote a scathing email to me once about how I say the word because wrong. I think because when I'm talking casually, I say like because, because, not like because. I think about it probably (laughs) twice a day. Like this is how pervasive people's commentary is about the way you talk. And then I think sometimes you get so much feedback on how you talk. You're at risk of a full Dorit Kemsley of like having an unidentifiable <laughs> accent that's a little bit of everything because you you just like don't even know who you are anymore. Just like we love certain things, small things are going to irritate the shit out of people, and like that's fine. But it doesn't mean you have to fully change because yeah, of it. it also means you don't have to send an email. That is crazy. Well, here's my other question. What's wrong with having a Utah accent? Like, what's wrong? I, I guess when people point these things out, I'm like, and. Yeah. Like, shouldn't you be able to have a dialect or pronunciations that are derivative of where you come from? Like, Yeah. And I always want to be like, this is optional for you to listen to. It's both optional and free. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if there's any other commentary, just maybe keep it to yourself. Stop hurting my feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Real Housewives of Salt Lake really did Utahns dirty because those are like the Utah of the Utah accents. And so people are like, well, I can hear it because you talk like Whitney Rose. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't talk like her. I promise. Dude, how do people feel about the housewives in Salt Lake? I don't hear about it a lot, to be honest. I mean, I think people like it and I'll see people post like, oh, I saw the housewives at, you know, this bar when I went out or whatever. But I think when it first happened, it was much, much more of a hot topic because it was the first time that 
Bravo was airing stuff about the Mormon church. And it was this huge thing. Because did that air in 2020? Yeah. It was a tense time all around. And I think people were just ready to hop on and be mad about how the church was being represented or whatever. And now I don't hear too much about it. I feel like that every first season of a Housewives franchise, they over explain or over justify why they chose that location in a way that ultimately ends up being irrelevant to the location. Like Real Housewives of Dallas over explained uh, the role of charity work at first. New York City over-explained the role of high society, the Alex yeah. McCord of it all, and like the Bethany V. Jill-like status. And then like Beverly Hills was all about wealth at first. And over time, it just becomes yeah. about the women. And I think that Salt Lake City, they overemphasized the role of the Mormon church when really the only person that was in it at the time was Heather Gay, Winnie Rose used to be, and then Lisa Barlow, you know, as we now know, goes to the chapel and not yeah. the <laughs> temple. But it wasn't really like a, a strong through line of the series and so and they even made the score sound yeah. very holy which i actually love the salt lake city score I do too. I, i'm sure people now are realizing it's kind of irrelevant ultimately to the mormon church beyond people being concerned for jack barlow <laughs> and his mission <laughs> well that's the thing is that people were like we don't want people who are wondering about the church i remember every mommy blogger made this this post where it was like please don't get your information about the church from real housewives and i wanted to be like no one is, I promise. <laughs> no one's like curious about the church and is like, I'm going to watch Housewives of Salt Lake. It's like, I promise. Nobody who's thinking about getting baptized is headed to Housewives. No one that was ripe for con yeah. conversion is. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how can Bravo. I get the best research? Mm, Housewives of Salt Lake. So no, I don't I don't feel like it, it affected people as much as they thought or it affected even Utah, like as much as people thought. Like it's just it's just kind of this fun little fact. If anything, it brought a glam factor. I, I feel like to Salt Lake that like maybe your average person might not know about. But when Courtney and I went there, we kind of were shook at how beautiful people were. And we even <laughs> like felt like we looked prettier there. We kind of had a moment where we were like, are we gorgeous? Like we look disproportionately better here. And my makeup artist was disproportionately better than every other makeup I, artist. <laughs> I mean, there is, okay, but there is probably something to say about the weather and makeup here. When I went to Houston for Eras, we hired a makeup artist because I was like, we're getting glam. Like we're doing room service in the hotel while we get glam. Like I, we went all out. Yeah. She was an insanely talented makeup artist. And I was like, something's happening, something. And I'm like, oh, it's, I'm, I'm sweaty. I'm sweatier here than I was in Utah. My makeup sticks better in Utah and I look better. So yes, I think about it all the time. Like, why was my makeup so good in Utah? And maybe it was just a level of skill other people didn't have, or I don't know. Yeah. I just had a great time. We went to Park City the day after my show and I shot a bullseye. Like there's just like a man outside <laughs> of the bar, like offering archery. I just was like, this is a, what a great time I'm having. It felt like nowhere else in the U.S. that I normally yeah. frequent. It felt like a special place. And I think that, yeah, there's like a lot more glam there. Though I will say we went to Vultures, which was heavily featured on Housewives. And that was not maybe the most ideal culinary experience. No offense to Vultures. When I first graduated high school, I was like, I'm leaving Utah. I got to get out of here. I got to, you know, and as I've gotten older, I'm like, I really like this weird little corner of the country. I get why the pioneers were like, damn. This is the place. This really is. It's so pretty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I've gotten you so off topic, but I do want to end with you talking about your book. Oh, my gosh. Yes. What about it? Just tell us everything that's in it and read it to us right now. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. But I mean, so you have a book coming out. Correct me if I'm wrong. January 23rd. Yes. One, two, three, two, four. Oh my gosh. It's right in time for my maternity leave when I will be hunkered down inside. So I'm really excited for it. So when did you start the book? I, it started as like kind of random essays like a long time ago, two or three years ago that I would kind of workshop at live shows. So like our job's kind of weird where we speak into an abyss and don't get direct like real time feedback. Like a lot of people work out material but we kind of can't. Wait, I want to ask you this before, because this just sparked this question. What was that transition like for you to go from, I mean, and you've, you had probably done obviously public events and things like that before the tour, but it's so weird because our job is not technically public speaking and people are always like, well, just do a live show. And I'm always like, I can't, I'm too scared. I don't want to. But what was that like for you to go from, you know, I record and I write alone and then doing it live? I loved it because I think I realized a couple years into this, my job didn't feel very real. 
because it was so remote and so digital and I'm talking into a mic, but like, I don't always believe that there are people on the other end. And then when you have people that you meet in person and your work means something to them, it made me realize I'm not in the business of talking. I'm in the business of keeping people company. Like it really framed this job for me in a way that made me quite proud of it and very purposeful in moving forward with it. Cause otherwise it's just hard to trust that people care and it matters. And I think I was just yeah. struggling with feeling, you know, when you're not like the biggest creator out there, you just like sometimes don't know how to value your own work when you don't report to anybody totally. else. And I think that was the biggest thing live shows did for me was really make this job feel real. And beyond that, it, it's like a fun new career challenge, I think. And I think he would really like it too. The hard part is I never really feel that satisfied with my performance because I want it to be a combination of shooting the shit, but like that isn't always going to land with like also like a PowerPoint and a more structured presentation. So it's hard not to be like hard on yourself, but yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's really fun to meet the people who are on the other end of the mic. And that's the most important part. And you found it to be integral to writing your book? Yeah, absolutely. So I was having trouble selling a book. Like most publishers I was speaking to at the time wanted like the Be There in Five story, like the business story, the doormats, the... I don't know, stuff I've been interviewed about in the past. And I was like, well, what about me just like generally musing about how women's interests in pop culture intersect? <laughs> and people were like, no, like, why? No. People were like, well, they don't. So yeah, right. <laughs> I wasn't getting much traction. And I'd written two essays that are the first and last chapters of the book, you know, per the modifying the song lyrics we were talking about that I've modified big time since they needed to fit in the book better. And I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't know if people cared or liked it. And at one New York show, I was like, I'm just going to read a couple of these excerpts out loud and see how people respond. And then maybe that can help me like know if there's space for this. What ended up happening is it's kind of my Bluebird Cafe moment at that show in New York. There was a person there from Macmillan. Whoa. Like in the audience who was a podcast listener. And I and I brought up that I wanted to write a book. And then they ended up helping me get a meeting. Like it's my own audience that ma makes things happen for me. Yeah, It's not like big wigs in the biz. It's people that like understand you and believe in you. So anyway, that was kind of another really important outcome of a live show. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so when I meet people afterward, more so than anything I talked about in the show, the Taylor Swift stuff or the jokes, people always talk to me about the essays and it made me just have confidence in them in a way that I, I might not have otherwise. Yeah, it was such an amazing part of your live show that I saw that I was like, what, like, nobody had ever like said this to me or even articulated this or made me feel like this was, you know, the things I like are even important or cool or worthwhile or whatever, which is such a huge hurdle to get over as a woman is being like, are my interests even valid? Are they even like, do they even matter? Like, are they cool? Are they important? Anything like that? Which I feel like, I mean, you just, you do really well. So I'm, I'm excited to read, but it's been a good process like for writing and getting it all done. Yeah. I mean, more stressful than you thought, longer than you thought. What are your thoughts? I guess I should also tell people it's called One in a Millennial if you want to find it. Yes, yes. I forgot to say the yeah. title. Um, but yeah, that's a big thesis of it. And I feel like it's a conversation we're having now more culturally, like with the Barbie movie year of it all. But at the time, like I wanted to not only like validate that your interests matter, like regardless of how surface level they are, but also like reclaim all the years that I was convinced they didn't matter or that I sat in basements with boys listening to jam bands, pretending I liked them or that I like, I just feel like there's an interesting thing that can happen where I'm always doing on the fly calculations of how to position myself because women's intellect can be conflated with their interests. And if I say my first concert was Clay Aiken and Ruben Stutter, like in the workplace, well, yeah. <laughs> what is this, you know, boomer going to think about me? Yeah. And so it's like that act of modifying yourself in small ways, not to be dishonest, but to be taken seriously, perceived as interesting or smart. And it's like crazy that we do these mental gymnastics and something that's been totally. really important about getting older and evolving and even doing this podcast is just like ownership of that stuff and how much of a difference it can make. Anyways, about read the process. I mean, writing a book is incredibly difficult. I'm not going to lie. And what I'm sure you will understand too, what was crazier is trying to finish it while I finding out I was pregnant. And it just made me have such an appreciation for the things women do pregnant because I didn't feel like a full person. So I think that's always going to be a little hard is knowing that I had to turn in the final product when I wasn't at my best mentally and physically. But, you know, we make do. And I think that's actually I think what's maybe special about it is I found out I was pregnant two weeks before it was due. 
So it was already done. And it's kind of getting off my chest, all this stuff about my identity. And the end is kind of me musing about like, you know, how odd is it that you're spoken to your whole life about being a wife and mother, and that's so associated with your identity. But then what if you get to that age and like, those aren't things you want, those aren't things that have happened. At the time I was, I was having trouble with fertility. And I'm like, so who am I, if not these other things that are basically who I am to other people. Mm -hmm. And the whole book's kind of a proclamation of identity in that way. And like, let's just be really proud of all the things we've ever done and all the places we've learned lessons, even if they're in the most shallow of places. I don't know. It was kind of a really important project, I think, for my own identity when I was struggling with this next step of motherhood. Yeah. But I don't know if that answered your question. But yeah, it was a really rewarding process. It was hard and it was hard to finish pregnant. Just the headspace, the cognitive labor. Like, I think some, I was just really tired the first trimester. I don't know if you were. Yeah, the tired, I feel like the tireds are hitting me now. And the thought of, I mean, when I prep episodes and I have four pages of notes, I'm like, that's as much as I will ever be able to write ever. Like those four word pages, I'll I'll never write more than that. So to think about the load of writing a full book is crazy to me and is such an accomplishment. Like even being able to fill, I couldn't fill a book with anything that I think or say. So I'm really impressed with you and doing all of that. And I'm really excited. So yeah, January, is Amazon the best place to pre-order it or where do you prefer that people go find it? Uh, There's a link in my Instagram bio that has like all the outlets at Kate Kennedy. You can buy it yeah, Barnes okay. and Noble, Amazon, your local indie bookshops, all, always a great thing to support. Whatever works for you. Wherever you get your books, yes. you can pre-order One in a Millennial. And yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for all those years ago. I mean, saying yes to my my new little baby podcast. It was seriously still to this day. I'm like getting that Kate Kennedy interview three years ago was like such a highlight for me. So <laughs> I'm happy to say you have transformed from a podcasting icon to me to a friend. So I'm glad that it took this route. Earlier when you said we had only met the one time, I'm like, is that true? And it's funny because, yeah, I'll meet people once and then we like text and have like a normal friendship. And I am convinced I spend more time with them than I actually have, I guess. (laughs) But I'm coming to Salt Lake on my book tour. Oh, perfect. Will it be next spring or summer? No, the tour is like right after it comes out. So like late January, early February. Oh, oh, so you'll I won't see you. You'll be like in labor. (laughs) No, you will see me. (laughs) No. (laughs) But I went to a Jonas Brothers concert three weeks postpartum. I feel like it's not that I felt great. It's just that I wanted to get out of the house. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, I can't sit here any longer. I know the impending winter is stressing me out because I'm like, I'll just go on a walk. And then I'm like, no, No. I can't. But I'll do a drive by. Even if you don't feel like leaving the house, I'll come at least say hi to you and the babe if you want. Yes, I do want to say I credit you and Courtney. I mean, Courtney sat down with me right at the beginning of my podcast and laid out, you know, here are some good things to do. Here are some good things. And I use them to this day. And I credit everything that I've been able to do to you and Courtney being willing to guide me through that. So oh my gosh, I love I'm just that. really appreciative and love to watch a girl boss winning. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I am so happy to hear that. I think there's room for everyone. I love other female talent, especially that's willing to go into the solo podcasting space, which is not for everyone. But I think your show is so good. You're, I'm obsessed with your merch. It's like some of the best merch out there. <laughs> Just wishing you all all the good things. And thank you for having me on. Of course. Okay, well, I'll see you next spring, but talk sooner than that. And thanks for being here. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, you can catch a new episode of The Bad Broadcast every Monday. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything. Also, I want to hear from you. So please leave a rating and review. You can also follow me on Instagram at The Bad Broadcast for all the behind the scenes action and more information. Talk to you next week. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.